Today's episode of the Villain News Podcast is brought to us by our good friends at Whoop. Uh, if you've been listening to Fast Talk with Chris Case and Coach Trevor Connor, you have heard about Whoop, but they're a first-time sponsor for the Vela News Podcast, so thank you to Whoop. Now, what is Whoop? Whoop is a performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. It is a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that monitors your heart 100 times per second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It then pairs that to an app and provides analytics and insight, mostly on recovery, strain, and sleep. So you can tell when your body is recovered and when you need more rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate, variability, and your quality of sleep. So what basically what Whoop does, it, it, it monitors your heart rate. And after a hard workout, if your heart is still beating pretty hard, Whoop is going to track it and let you know that, you know what, you probably need a little bit more recovery. Maybe today is not the best day to go do your super hard intervals. Um, we've heard from multiple riders racing at the elite level that they are really liking Whoop because, you know, before you're just kind of going by feel. Hey, I feel tired. Hey, I feel fatigued. But finally, you have a device that can measure that. And we have a special deal for listeners of the podcast who are interested in buying a Whoop. You can go to Whoop.com. That is W-H-O-O-P.com. Use the code VELO, V-E-L-O, at checkout to save 15% to get yourself a Whoop. Again, Whoop.com. Offer code VELO. Get 15% off. So thank you to Whoop for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. Uh, it is a late-in-the-week Vela News Podcast. It's our Tour de France wrap-up show coming to you on a Thursday. You may be listening to this on Friday or over the weekend. Apologies on my end for coming to you late in the week. We had a whole three days of planning meetings here at Velo News, planning out 2020, getting on the same page with all of our coworkers. It was, it was great if you've ever had some like round of corporate meetings. There was team building exercises. We played with Legos. Uh, unfortunately, someone who was not there to indulge in the team building and all the planning was Mr. Andrew Hood, who is on today's podcast from the Man Cave in Spain. Uh, Hoodie, you missed the team building exercises. Um, if you would have been there, I would have ha happily invited you on my team for team building. Oh, man. Corporate team building exercises. I haven't been to one of those ever, <laughs> at least in a long time. I remember the, the low, one of the low points of my life was, oh, man, it must have been more than 20 years ago when I decided to go full-time freelance. This was uh, back in the mid-90s when I decided to – Cut the ties to my full-time job. I was working for some newspapers in Colorado. Quit, and I was going to Europe. My first couple of years in Europe, and I got a job because I needed, you know, just a little bit of cash to get me back over to Europe. I think it was my second season chasing the bike races in Europe, and I got a job at the Denver Marriott uh, Banquets uh, Convention Center uh -huh. there, down the Denver Tech Center. I don't know if it's even still there. But there I was in my late 20s, maybe early 30s, you know, kind of at this mid-point, mid-life shift in my changing directions. I'd split up with my fiance. I was moving to Europe, this whole new adventure in my life. And, uh, you know, there I was serving, you know, these these banquets to these these uh, little corporate officials there. And they all have their team building exercises there. And they're all making the big bucks. They're on the corporate track. 
getting their stock options. And there I was slinging plates. I think it was like 10 bucks an hour. Man, that was the low point of my life. So I just like, you know, when you say team building exercise, man, it's a bad point for me. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Andy, you have taken us in the Wayback Machine this early in the podcast. I love it. We're learning so much about you. Breaking up with fiancés, slinging pasta to jerks in suits at their team building exercises in the tech center. I love this. Story time with Udi. We're getting going early. We haven't haven't even talked about the Tour de France yet. (laughs) That's as low as it goes. I mean, from there, it's been like, you know, it's like the bottom of the market. Everything else from there has been straight up. I like that. I think maybe uh, a new feature on the podcast is going to be my low moment, and people can send in stories from their own low moments. I had that, yeah. I was in my early 30s. I had been laid off of a job. I was having to do local breaking news reporting in New York City. It was the hottest summer on record in New York City, and I was like chasing after murderers and fire trucks and all these different things. And I don't know how we got on that tangent. I like it, though. I like it. We're going to be a very, very freewheeling episode of the Villeneuve's podcast. We're going to talk all about the Tour de France and get our takes, our analysis on the last last week of the race. And now that we've had a couple days to digest the action, what we think about it, some of our some of our memories of the race and our, just our lasting impression of the 2019 Tour de France. Then in the second half of the show, we're going to hear from Jonathan Vodders, manager of Team EF, who has written a book called uh nine lives on two wheels um it's an interesting book i read it i wrote a book review of it I, you should check it out on com. and yeah listen to my interview with Vodders. he talks a lot about his own experience in the freewheeling free doping peloton of the uh, late 90s early 2000s and had a pretty frank discussion with old jv uh before we get to that andy it's almost a week since the tour de france ended um, we have chewed over the footage. We have written the stories. We have had the takes. We have time to have had time to mull over our takes and switch our thoughts on them. And so my first question for you is what is your overall impression? What's going to be your lasting impression of the 2019 tour de France? Yeah, I think a couple of days away from the race, I feel like there's a sense of, uh, Disappointment, not disappointment, just the fact that I just felt like the race did not end the way that the whole race was unfolding. That suddenly, literally, that someone had just rained on the parade, that everything was this big buildup. Those last two stages were going to be so good and be this kind of real dog, dog fight between all those. There's like five guys there all within a few, a few seconds of each other. And then the way the race unfolded just totally pulled the carpet out from underneath the peloton and ended up permanently changing the race. We'll never know. What might have happened? Uh, Egon Bernal, first Colombian Tour de France winner. The way the race went, he won. You know, he, he's the winner. You know, is he is he a worthy winner? I mean, you could argue you could argue both ways. Really, you could say yes, he 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 was there. He's attacking. The next day, he defended. He wins, and, and there's nothing you can change about what happened that's on those two days anyway. But I just feel like the women got cheated by Mother Nature of what was absolutely a spectacular Tour de France up to those last two days, and then it was kind of just like a, a big letdown. Yeah, I'm with you. This is kind of like the the party where there's a lot of anticipation around it, and you can't wait to go. They got the best booze and the best band, and all the you know guys and gals you like are going to be there, and then you get there, and you're having a great time, and then 
the cops show up right before 10 p.m., kick everyone out, and you just spend the rest of the time thinking about, like, ah, I wish we would have been able to rage until 2, 3 a.m. Uh, it was a great tour, shaping up to be a great tour. We covered so many of the storylines here on Villainews.com. Oh, the French Renaissance. Uh, Thibaut Pinot, he has attacking to win. Philippe, how long can he hold it? All these different contenders, all these stages. Oh, it's so exciting. And then cue the sad trombone. Wah, wah, wah. Mother Nature came in. Stage 19, the hailstorm that was localized on like one stretch of road. I still don't know how the heck that happened, how you have this great country of France, this whole region of the Alps, and there's just this just completely insane hailstorm that that just focuses on the one stretch of road that needs to be used by the rays. We all laughed at the soaring aerial photographs of the uh, the front end loader sloshing the water off of the road. That's a strange technique. Never seen that one before. Uh, saw the landslides. There was a, a great Twitter video of Dag Otto Lawrenson like screaming in fear as this like landslide was just covering the road. Um, stage 20 also truncated when some of the roads were washed away. We saw images of French teenagers taking their motorcycles up there and just roostering rocks as they were riding their motorcycles up on the washed out roads. I guess being a teenager is the sure same everywhere. <laughs> you just go to <laughs> places of danger and ride your motorcycle. You sure that wasn't Peter Sagan? Yeah. <laughs> race is race. Uh, the whole thing just kind of got washed out. The battle that we were anticipating never really happened. Kudos to Egan Bernal for attacking on stage 19, having that two-minute gap at the top of the Lizaron where they had to call everything, where everyone was confused. Kudos to him for defending the next day on the short uphill stage. Um, but yeah, to a certain degree, I'm with you. I think that Egan Bernal is a worthy winner because he was the strongest guy. But I do think there all there will always be questions. I don't know if there's going to be an a, like a full blown asterisk over this year's tour, but the Wikipedia page entry for the 2019 Tour de France is going to be first Colombian winner. Oh, and you know the the hardest part of the tour got lopped off, and we were left with kind of a incomplete feeling. Um, as I wrote in my roundtable, I gave it three out of five glasses of rosé. I wanted to give it four, but since it was so spoiled by the weather, it was and 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 Thibaut Pino pulling out. And since it had been so great up to that point, it really just I don't know. The whole thing left kind of bad taste in my mouth. But I am also a very needy cycling fan. I I demand excellence. All the time you're laughing at me. I know. I'm like a Velenews reader. I demand excellence. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave it I gave it four out of five glasses of rosé. But I almost want to take you know take away a half carafe, you know, half a pichot away from the rating just for that exact reason because the whole the whole race just deflated in a question of really minutes you saw Pinot pull out Alaphilippe got dropped Bernal attacked race truncated neutralized next day the race uh, cut short by by uh, weather issues you can't change that I think they made the best decision they could under the circumstances you, you can't really put any sort of blame on the on the Tour de France I mean if there if there's any suggestion the Tour de France was favoring the French, you know what they could have done was just cancel the whole stage, that 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 stage on Friday. Let Pinot start the next day, and let Alaphilippe start the next day in yellow. Then that would have been a controversy. And maybe give Alaphilippe an e-bike too. You know, maybe that <laughs> give Alaphilippe an e-bike. But um, but yeah, I just kind of at, at this at the end it was a little bit deflated. 
not to say that it was really an enjoyable enjoyable tour de France from start to finish. Uh, one that I thought was you know really one of the, the best in a long time, and one of the reasons why we talked about this before, you know, the fact that uh, the way the time trials were in this tour kind of kept the race tight. The fact that Chris Froome wasn't here or Dumoulin, and plus the fact that uh, you know all those climbs were kind of packed in, and just how competitive the field was, and so tight start to finish. But you know, you know, we we leave this tour, you know, seeing Bernal. I mean, Bernal, you get the sensation that he really can't quite believe that he won, and you almost get feeling that just doesn't feel like he was deserved winner. I don't know. I mean, he, just seems, he seems like a pretty n- honest, nice guy. So you kind of wonder if a part of him inside of him might be doubting the fact, you know, did he really deserve to win that tour? Because we'll never know what would happen that day on the road to Tinya because, you know, those guys are coming up from behind. Yeah, it was, I think, almost a minute, 58 seconds to that chasing group. But, you know, that was part of their tactic, I think, was to send uh, a burnout up the road. You know, they could have probably stayed away. You know, they had Simon Yates with, the, with them. You never know what those guys could have done together, but Bernal could have crashed. Bernal could have had a puncture. Bernal could have maybe ran out of gas. You'll never know. And then that next day, being short, all they had to do was follow the wheels. You know, Enios had the numbers. Bernal obviously had the strength. And Garen Thomas, I really think, has left that tour believing that in a way he got robbed. I think he believed he could have won. He should have won. I think he believes he should have won. And imagine the dynamics had the previous day Philippe had cracked over that Galibier stage that went over the Israel and, the, and Galibier. And had he had had the yellow jersey starting that day, you know, that whole race would have unfolded differently. So I think Garrett Thomas is probably racking his brains right now thinking, man, how did that turn away from me when in a lot of ways he raced a near perfect race up to that point? And I think that's a really good segue into what I want to talk about next, which is, okay, you have Garrett Thomas, who wins the Tour de France, finishes a close second, maybe feels like he was cheated out of it, like he had the legs and the ability to win the Tour de France if the uh, weather had not been a factor. Then you have Egan Bernal, the man who wins the Tour de France, who was strongest on the course that they actually raced. And you have Chris Froome coming back from his injury. What the heck does Team Ineos do for the 2020 Grand Tour season and the 2020 Tour de France? Now, I know some people have written about this online, trying to prognosticate what the 2020 Tour de France looks like, trying to put themselves in the director chair of David Brailsford, and you have these three great champions, all of whom are probably convinced that they are the man for the Tour de France. So what the heck do they do? I mean... Are you going to say no to Chris Froome? Of of all those three, it's like, you know, if all three are firing on all cylinders and are very strong, I mean, I don't know if Chris Froome is the strongest. I think maybe Egan Bernal is the strongest. Maybe Garrett Thomas is the strongest. But how do you create a, a team strategy around three Grand Tour champions who all want to win the Tour de France? To, that, to me, boggles my mind. Yeah, it's not a bad problem to have, though, is it? Uh, if, I mean, if maybe. You're, if you're, <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're Team Ineos and you want to win the Tour de France again, it's not a bad problem to have. But it's going to be tricky. I think the first key to that uh, question is going to be how Chris Froome comes back, right? We saw we saw some stuff on Twitter, him riding the rollers for the first time. You know, his right leg looks pretty mangled, despite the people looking for uh, conspiracies 
it looks like Chris Froome still has a long way to go before he's going to be racing a bike and being competitive. Um, so that is really the first big question mark. And then, you know, we've seen in the past, you know, remember, I think it was 2013, they shipped off uh, Bradley Wiggins to the Giro because it was pretty obvious, um, you know, looking at the numbers, that Froome was the guy to win that 2013 tour. So Brailsford's not afraid to make hard decisions based purely on the data and the and the facts that he has before him. There's no hiding these days in the Peloton in terms of where you are in fitness. Power meters tell everything, and they know it in real time. So if they're saying that someone's trailing off, not in top shape, that'll answer that question even before the race starts. But going into all three, I mean, do you send one of these guys to the Giro? Do you send Garrett Thomas to the Giro? Do you send Froome to the Giro and say, hey, you need to get some miles in your legs? Go to the Giro, and then we'll see how you do with the tour. Do you send Bernal to the Giro? I think, well... You know, we don't want to uh, burn out our guy. He's our guy for the next five years. But you know, logic to me would say you send all three. You have to send all three. Uh, that that makes it hard. A lot of lot of cooks in the kitchen and not many, uh, you know, too many chefs in the kitchen. Not many, not many guys to uh, do the prep because that would only leave you uh, five guys to help pull on the on the shortened team. But it's going to be that's going to be uh, one of the big question marks. And then you got Richard Carapaz who is uh, going to uh, Enios as well. He'll probably go to the Giro again, you know, but maybe he'll want to go to the Tour as well. Yeah, it's a good problem to have, but I mean, I'm with you. So many cooks in the kitchen. I guess a question that I keep asking myself again and again is like, well, what makes, what uh, in the grand scheme of cycling history would be more impressive for Team Enios, Team Sky, and Dave Brailsford? Is it to be the team of a five-time Tour de France champion, a guy who is up there in amongst the greatest Tour de France champions of all time, so to be that part of history in that way? Or is it to be the team that won the Tour de France, you know, seven out of eight years or nine out of ten years or whatever with four different riders and, you know, you, you so thoroughly dominated the race, but it really wasn't about one Rider, I tend to think it maybe is the latter. If you are the team that dominates the race for this, very, you know, this era of cycling, and you're able to do it with more than run riders, like obviously that reflects better on Brailsford than it does on Froome. And I wonder if that factors into it at all. I mean, you got to figure for Chris Froome if he does come back and is in good in is in good condition, he'll have a pretty good case to make for why Team Ineos should back him at the Tour de France. Hey guys, I'm chasing history, like. Come on now, five-time Tour de France champion. Only a very small group of people, only the best, best, best of the sport have been able to do that. But, I, you know, if you're David Brailsford, are you sort of saying, yeah, 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 we'll do that. But uh, my boy Egan all over here, he Egan is also going to be uh, keeping keeping tabs on you, Chris, just to see see how you do in some of these mountain stages. Yeah, and then, and then uh, you know, as you, as you just mentioned, I've already, they've already won – uh, the tours, six out of seven tours with four different riders, really unprecedented. Um, and then you're looking at uh, the future. You know, how many more tours is Ineos going to win? You know, with Bernal, the Grand Bernal coming up. You know, the future is wide open. But as we as we as we've seen, you know, sometimes a young rider can get this big success early, and their careers can go off the rails. We've seen it time again and again. You know, you saw, you know, the most famous case, uh, Jan Ulrich, one at 23. Bernal's even younger. You know, Bernal seems mature for his age. 
He obviously has the class as a rider. I mean, come on. He, he, it's his second grand tour of his life, and he won the Tour de France. You know, pretty impressive. It goes in, wins the Tour de Suisse, comes into this race, really handles the whole race with panache. The good thing for Bernal up to now is that all the attention was always on Froome or Garrett Thomas and the team. The team is the star in this case as well. So Bernal hasn't had all that attention on him yet. That's going to change from Sunday going forward. He is not going to be the center of attention. It's going to be a big question mark in how he handles that and how he can manage that going the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean, do you remember the images after the 2013 Tour de France when Nairo Quintana came back to Colombia? And it was like, I think he was on his own 747 and like the president met him at the airport and he had a ticker tape parade through Bogota and the entire country came out for him. And that was for finishing second place and getting the white jersey. This guy finally wins it and he is going to be far and away the biggest deal in Colombia for at least a few weeks this year. And yeah, as you said, some guys, some champions in sport, not just cycling, are able to thrive and deal really well under that type of intense attention, which then leads to scrutiny, which then leads to, you know, the media and everything like that. And some guys aren't able to do that. So that will also be a storyline I guess we're going to have to follow. With uh, Mr. Egan Bernal. But yeah, Ineos 2020, I, that's, to me, that's just, that's a total, totally new chapter, new wrinkle in the, in the history of this sport, let alone the history of this team. Yeah, interesting you mentioned Nairo. You know, he was the guy that was supposed to win the first Tour de France for Colombia, right? I mean, he came out, I think he was 23 when he got that second place in 2013. When he, you know, he went and won the Giro the next year, the first Colombian to win the Giro, came back the next year, second again to firm 2015, and I think 2016, third, and then he won that Vuelta 2016, and then ever since then, Nairo has not been the same rider. He he got second behind Dumoulin at that Giro in 2017-18, um, but Nairo has not been the same Nairo over the past three editions of the Tour de France. And it was interesting coming into this last week of the tour, you saw kind of a lot of the cracks in that Movistar facade kind of really just open up and obvious to the, to the world. Really, There was lots of uh, friction within that team. You saw Nairo uh, go away in some breaks. Um, a lot of unhappy people inside that camp. Nairo is uh, reputed to be a guy who uh, doesn't like to have his leadership question. He likes to be the big guy, thinks he deserves it. I mean, he's the only Colombian to win the Giro. You know, only the second Colombian to win a Grand Tour has won two, three times on the Tour podium. So he never th- expects that he has to be the teammate. Like a guy like Garrett Thomas, he's a loyal teammate, helping Chris Froome, helping Bernal. He got his chance to win. That's not the same attitude that Nairo had on Movistar. You know, he's supposed to be going to this Arkea team next year where he'll be uh, bringing a few writers with him and be the new leader of that team outright. We'll see what happens with Nairo. But this week in, in Spain, there was there was uh, some stuff that came out in the media about how a lot of unhappy people inside Movistar because the one day when, uh, when uh, Lando attacked in the Pyrenees, Lando, uh, Nairo was in that breakaway. Lando came up to him. Nairo didn't even try to even take a pull. Landa came up next to him, didn't even look at him, and then Landa kept going. 
because Lana was trying to get back within range of uh, the podium or perhaps trying to win a stage. And then going into the going into the into the Alps, you know, Nairo was in that big breakaway, and there was a big kind of stink up. You know, why is Movistar pulling? Remember that day over the Isward, you know, they, the Movistar pulls to the front, you know, knocks down uh, Nairo's gap from eight to five minutes going over this ward. But then Movistar sat up because they said that Nairo was looking good and Nairo was on the radio saying he felt good. So Movistar set up. Nairo delivers, wins the stage. Everyone's happy. And then what happens the next day uh, going up to Val Terence, it's a big chance for either Landa or Valverde to win a stage. You know, Nairo had already won his stage. He had nothing to gain, but he had nothing to lose. But he did not help that team on that day. In fact, he made some ridiculous little stab there, burnt his matches and just popped off the back. You know, he just followed the wheel in to keep his top 10, but he did not help Landa, did not help Valverde. So not a lot of unhappy people to see uh, Quintana leave Movistar here in Spain. Interesting, interesting. Polemica at uh, Team Movistar. Well, we didn't see anything like that at Team Ineos. And that's how that will somehow be the, uh, you know, David Brailsford will undoubtedly write some like management book after his time is done in cycling of how he managed to, you know, control all these egos and keep them from infighting and just keep them as, oh, they're just blokes. They're just mates the whole time. Oh, uh, because, yeah, we didn't see that with Team Ineos. We didn't see, we don't see anything except strength from them. Uh, there were a couple other storylines I, I feel like we need to touch on from this year's tour. You know, we always talk about how, you know, we want to see a more egalitarian tour, more different teams taking stage wins, uh, different teams battling for the overall. And we didn't we didn't really see that this year. You know, we had three teams win four stages. But I do think it does represent an element of, uh, of a more egalitarian tour because – there are three stages that there are three teams that we haven't really thought of as dominating teams. You know, we've seen Quickstep win a ton of stages of the tour. We've seen Sky and Ineos win a ton of stages of the tour. This year, Lada Sudal, Mitchelton Scott, Yumbo Visma all won four stages of the Tour de France, which is which is kind of insane to me because I don't think of any of those teams other than Yumbo because they have Grunewagen and they have this really well-rounded cast. But I don't think – I never think of any of these teams as like dominant stage-winning teams in Grand Tours. Do you? Yeah, what impressed me was that they won each – well, in the case of Lotto and Yumbo, well, Lotto won with two different riders, but uh, Mitchelton won with three different riders and uh, Yumbo as well. You know, you're getting uh, the depth – uh, all packed into these teams, you know, the, t- the takeaway for me is, you know, it's, it's not an egalitarian tour at all. It's still a tour dominated by a few big teams. We're seeing a few teams muscle in on that kind of hierarchy of, but still it's the Enios the quick steps, the Moby stars that always deliver. I mean, Yumbo, all three of those teams had spectacular tours. Uh, I was impressed with Mitchelton Scott, how they kind of salvaged their tour because they kind of came in with pretty big ambitions for Adam Yates they honestly believe that he could podium in this tour. And in fact, I, I kind of I picked him as my outsider going into the tour, thinking that he could be kind of uh, the rider that could kind of surprise people and be in the mix. But he, again, just flopped, right? I mean, last year, same thing, just did not have the legs. So I'm not sure what's happening with those guys because Simon Yates also struggled on the GC at the Giro. But man, um, you know, Mitchelton Scott, two big mountain stages with uh, – 
with Samanya. It's very impressive. And then Yumbo Visma, I mean, man, that you know, you look across that team, that is the most successful team because they also got the podium with Kweiswick. Yeah, and it's and it just goes to, you know, the story that we've been talking about again and again with them, which is smart building, having a long-term plan, having a long-term goal, bringing people on the team when they are young and having them thrive under the team. I mean, you can look at Wout van Aert's win. Okay, Wout van Aert is a tested cyclocross racer. He's good. Everyone knows he's going to be a good road rider. But, you know, the fact that Mike Tunison is winning a stage and that, um, you know, Gronewagen is finally coming along. I, I mean, this team is – they're very impressive. I, I was – I was completely blown away, though. This sort of slots into the story that caught me a bit by surprise, which was the progression of Caleb Ewan on Lotto Sudal into a Tour de France stage-winning rider. He won three sprint stages. And I am the first one to throw my hands up and say I did not – I never thought Caleb Ewan was going to be a Tour stage winner. I thought he was going to top out as like a Giro stage winner, you know, winning these races early in the season in Australia. We've seen him have success at sort of lower tier races, but I just didn't, I just never thought he had the horsepower to compete with the Viviani and Sagan and Christophe and some of these other heavy sprinters. And not only did he do it, but he looked great winning on the Champs-Élysées, winning three stages. Um, I don't know. Did, did you see this coming? Did you think? Caleb Ewan was capable of this level of uh, sprinting success? Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I didn't think he was, uh, you know, last year when he was uh, at Mitchelton Scott, they you know, snubbed him and didn't bring him to the, the tour last year. And a lot of controversy around that. Um, you really got the first hints that, that Caleb was on some good form really at the Giro. I remember he won a couple stages at the Giro this year. But I agree with you. I thought that uh, – you know, I wasn't sure Caleb was going to have like that breakthrough performances that would kind of push him into the elite because he was always kind of nibbling at the edges. You know, he could, he could win, you know, at the Tour of Oman. He could win at the Tour Down Under. He could win, you know, some. But you know, he never really was winning big World Tour level races consistently in Europe. Um, and when you look at that team that Lotto had, you know, they brought this kind of a team full of stage hunters. You know, a lot of those guys had kind of their freedom to arrive themselves, you know, Tish Benut, Thomas DeGuet, Tim Wellens, you know, even Montfort. So he had kind of uh, Roger Kluga leading him out and uh, Jens Kerkeler. Um, but, man, absolutely impressive win by by Caleb. You know, he's got that little tuck, man. It's like, you know, Arrow, right? Arrow is, 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 the, is like the new, uh, new Epo. <laughs> Punch in a small <laughs> hole, as they say. That's right. And then we we would be remiss if we didn't mention the other big storyline of this year's Tour de France, which was just the emergence of Julian Alaphilippe as a Grand Tour rider. Now, Alaphilippe faded to fifth place overall. I actually think he would have faded further uh, had the stages not been truncated because he got dropped pretty hard in the Alps um, on that climb up the Lizeran. He lost two minutes. Um, then he lost you know, some further time after Jumbo Visma went to the front on the summit finish on stage 20. But a question I have for, for you, Hoodie, and I've been thinking about this too, is, well, do we think he could progress into a Grand Tour rider? I mean, he had this really impressive Tour de France. He wins a time trial. He's all over the place. He's riding aggressively. But with that now, people are going to be looking at him in stage races, and he is going to have pressure on him to perform. But 
do we think he's capable of that? Is some is that something he could we think he could grow into? Yeah, I'm, I I honestly hope he doesn't even try. You know, the the way the way that he is right now, he's such a great rider. I mean, what do you do to to transform into a, a staged race rider, right? You just you change your mentality from attacking and being aggressive and taking chances to really following wheels, right? And measuring your efforts and riding off the power meter, losing weight, getting really f- freaky about every little detail. And that's not the way Philippe is. He's the spontaneous guy. He's, he's the star of French cycling right now. We need him just the way he is. I hope he doesn't change. And in fact, I uh, he said in an interview with Lequipe uh, last couple of days that his big goal next year is not to try to come back and win the Tour de France, but he wants to go to the Tour of Flanders to try to win that. So, chapeau off, Philippe. You livened up this tour. You made it one of the best, greatest tours ever. Uh, I I just hope he stays the way he is. You know, maybe maybe another three or five years, you know, yeah, you can maybe try to win a Welta or try to win a Giro or something. Maybe the Welta might be more his style of all the races, but – Stick to what you're doing. Attack, attack, attack. Liven up these races. Win a world title. You know, win some more classics, and just make us all happy that way. I'm with you. I as much as as cool as it was to follow Julian Alaphilippe in the Tour de France, and as much as I would love to see a French winner of the Tour de France someday soon, I hope he stays uh, being the most explosive and dynamic. Uh, one day and week long racer that we have. I want to. I want to see him on the cobblestones. I want to see him on Roubaix. I want to see him win a world title. Try to win some of these other hilly classics. He's such a dynamic and aggressive and smart racer in one day races that I think he he should he should keep uh, hone his craft at that for a few more years. See what he can win. See what races that are outside of the box. He can put his mind to pull a Gilbert and win cobbles. Dirty Kansas. Yeah. How about Dirty Kansas? There you go. Uh, Send him a Dirty Kansas and the Steamboat Gravel Race and maybe one of those Epic Rides mountain bike races, the Cape Epic and Paris-Roubaix. There you go, Julian Alaphilippe. That's your racing schedule. Another another, uh, almost overshadowed these days by all the dynamics and drama of this year's tour, Peter Sagan. Record green jersey, won a stage. Signing autographs while climbing uh, the Galibier, wherever that was, popping wheelies, making friends with the fans. I mean, Peter Sagan, we're almost taking for granted now. I know. I was about to say, none of those things seem that out of the ordinary where you're like, if you would have told me before the race that Peter Sagan would win a seventh green jersey, win a stage, and be uh, filmed signing an autograph of his book, My World, uh, get it at velopress.com, um, while riding up a mountain stage. I Yeah. Was I, that a plant? Was that a plant, Fred? Was that, that was, like a, it was a plant. Maybe it was it a VeloPress <laughs> employee running along with the camera <laughs> by his book. Actually, you can get a uh, – well, no, it's August now. I was about to say through the month of July, if you wanted to get a uh, subscription to Velo News Print, you'd get a free copy of Peter Sagan's book. That sweepstakes has ended. I don't know why I just plugged it. <laughs> well, give him, you know, mention the podcast. We'll give you a free book. Yeah. Mention the podcast. Well, Hoodie, what's going to be the lasting memory for you from the 2019 Tour de France? Three weeks of racing, so much drama, Planche de Belfi, Peter Sagan, Julian Alaphilippe. What's it going to be the moment that you think will come to define this year's race? Well, on a personal side, it's the fact that I've been on the couch for a month and my wife has to take care of me hand and foot. It's been actually quite nice. It's the first time, you know. It's going to be tough going back to the real world where I have to, you know, start doing vacuuming and washing the dishes. But she's been doing that for a month, so it's been great. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, 
we can't take anything away. Egon Bernal, it's the start of a new era. I mean, this guy has all the class, all the qualities, all the talent, the team. You know, you're really looking at a potential five-time winner right here, right in front of our eyes. It's an exciting time in cycling, not only for Bernal, but so many young, new, exciting riders coming into the sport. You know, Van Aert, uh, you know, Vanderpool, uh, all these guys are coming up. It's an exciting time to be in cycling. It's a generational change. We're seeing it happening right before our eyes. Kara Pass winning the Giro, Egan Bernal winning winning the uh, the Tour de France. Maybe another Colombian can win can win the Welta this year. It's it's uh, heady times, and it's exciting to be a cycling fan because what a great tour. Uh, I will always remember the overhead images of the hailstorm and of the sloshing front end loader, and how it was so confusing but so difficult in the moment for what to know what the right decision was to do and i'm with you i look the tour de france made the right decision in that moment to not send the riders down that hub in that hub deep uh pool of frozen water and ice they shortened the stage they shortened the tour de france egan bernal was attacking we'll never know what happened but to me it was like that that you know, fifteen minute period of confusion and of oh my god, is this really happening? That will define the 2019 Tour de France for me. Not the image that I would have liked to have defined for me, for me, but it was so weird and so out of the ordinary. I mean, it's like you know when we saw Chris Froome running up the side of Vontoux, it's like oh, we see the peloton racing down this dynamic, exciting, crazy descent, and then all of a sudden they're talking to each other and they're getting yelled at by cars and everyone's coming to a grinding halt. So I think that will be my lasting memory. And I think it reminds us something that sometimes we take for granted with, with the Tour de France bike racing in general, which is that, look, you know, organized sports, football, baseball, basketball are all in these control environments of stadiums with retractable domes and, you know, tarp that you can put over the field and do all these things and postpone the game. You can't do that with cycling. Um, the fact that stage 19 had to come to a grinding halt right in the middle of the stage, like you wrote, it's, it's endemic to cycling. It's part of the sport. It's frustrating. It can be maddening, but it's also a very unique part of the sport that decisions like that have to be made on the fly. And I think they made the right one. But yeah, that's, that's a very strange image to have as the lasting image of the 2019 Tour de France. <laughs> well, hopefully it's sunny and hot for the Welta. No mudslides, no hailstorms. Nah, I think the only mudslides at the Welta are going to be the ones that you're uh, drinking at the bar afterwards. Perhaps <laughs> we might get some might get some heat stops. Yeah. You know the way the way it's been a hot hot summer in Europe might get some heat uh, protocol coming into play this this year's Welta. Well, we're going to have all sorts of fun pre-Welta stories here throughout August. We're going to be covering Leadville 100. We're going to be covering the Colorado Classic Women's Race. We're going to be covering uh, Steamboat Gravel and the Tour of Utah. So, as you know, I thought that we were just going to have dead time, but no, no, no. It's going to be a very busy month of August for Velo News. So stay tuned to VeloNews.com and the Velo News Podcast. And Andrew Hood, I want to thank you for... Uh, being the champion of the couch over the last three weeks of the Tour de France and uh, gritting it through the pain. You're wearing a brace right now for your collarbone and just being a champion, man, rising to the occasion. I love ibuprofen. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to hear from Jonathan Vodders now talking about his new book. Uh, but before that, message from one of our great sponsors. Yeah. 
This week's episode of the Vellum News Podcast also brought to us by our good friends at Abus. Abus is the German company that many of you know for making some of the best bike locks out there. Great bike lock manufacturer. But Abus also makes helmets. And in 2019, Abus Road and Mountain Bike Helmets are now available in the United States. The lineup includes the much-anticipated Aero Road helmet, the Abus Game Changer. And you can see these Abus helmets being worn by our good friends on the Movistar team. If you watch the Tour de France and you watch Movistar in the time trials in the high mountains and on the flats, they are wearing Abus helmets. So check out Abus, abus.com, and learn all about their great line of new road and mountain bike helmets. Thanks to Abus for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I am happy to be sitting across from Jonathan Vodders. Jonathan Vodders is, as you know, the founder of the Slipstream team, which had many names over the years. Garmin, Cannondale, Chipotle. Am I leaving anyone out? <laughs> oh, let's see. Sharp, Barracuda. Yeah, Barracuda. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, yeah, we've gone through a, a litany of different names and sponsors and everything else. And uh, Jonathan, I'm really psyched for you to join us today because we're going to talk all about the new book that uh, you have written called One Way Ticket, a memoir, Nine Lives on Two Wheels, which is going to be coming out pretty soon. And in this book, you document, oh, I'd say 30 years of your uh, relationship with cycling all the way from being a junior racer to being a professional racer, racing through the uh, EPO era, your relationship with Lance Armstrong, your retirement from the sport, your decision to found the team, and on and on and on. And Jonathan, you know, in the wake of some of the revelations around uh, the doping from the, the you know late 90s and early 2000s, there were a number of books that came out. Tyler Hamilton famously wrote a book. Uh, several years later, we saw the book from Thomas Decker come out. Some of these revealing looks at his own career and his own relationship with doping. I guess my opening question for you is, why now? What was it about the what's going on in your current life, your current relationship with cycling that persuaded you to do this book in 2019? Well, <clears throat> people have been bugging me. Uh, to do a book for quite a while now. I mean, uh, you know, and when I say people, I mean, you know, publishers and whatnot. Um, and obviously the biggest push for that would have been in, you know, 2012, 2013, right in the wake of, you know, the Lance Armstrong explosion. Um, the reason I did not do it then, uh, one is, you know, I really needed to focus on keeping the team funded. Um, but the bigger, uh, the bigger reason was that I felt it was inappropriate to sort of earn money off the back of Lance's demise. You know, that didn't seem right to me. And, you know, listen, I mean, to be to be honest, like the, the offers to write a book back then were a lot bigger than they were seven years later. Um, but it was important to me to put enough distance in between that episode and because this book is about me. Lance is part of it because he was, you know, part of my cycling career from when I was whatever was part of my cycling life. Well, basically from when I was 15 until now, like he still interjects himself, you know, here and there. So, you know, he's certainly a character in the book, but it's not a 
it's not a book about U.S. Postal Service. It's not a book about Lance. It's not a book about USADA. Those parts are in there very matter-of-factly as part of a, a greater history. So I just felt like I needed to wait. The The, the final factor was just um, that, you know, finally with EF, we have a, a financial situation where I'm not trying to do four jobs at once. Um, you know, I'm, I am you know, more performance focused than the team. And so I have a little bit of spare time. So I was able to, I was able to, to write a book in a year as opposed to be, you know, scrambling around for calls for cash all the time. <laughs> free time. You decide to write a book with it. I, uh, yeah. not, not what I would have chosen to do with my free time. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it needed to come out, you know, as to say like it, it, it was very cathartic, uh, for me, and, and I, I enjoy writing. It was a challenge. I didn't think I could do it. I mean, honestly, 120,000 words, that just sounds crazy, right? I, I mean, I've written a lot of magazine articles. I mean, for you guys, I've written stuff um, over the years that are, you know, anywhere from 800 to 2,000 words, or maybe 2,500 if I get really crazy. But 120,000 just sounded, wow, just really, really, really intimidating. But, uh, but I, you know, I wanted to see if I could do it. You know, you mentioned the word cathartic there, and I was going to ask you about that next, which is when I look at some of these other books that have come out and the tone that they have, you know, Tyler Hamilton's book was a very sort of clinical step-by-step process of his doping and how it changed his cycling. Mm. Thomas Decker was a very revealing look at some of the ah, nefarious activities that he was doing and sort of the party boy lifestyle. But what struck me about your book, Jonathan, is the interior voice that's present in the book, where through every step of the way, you really are sharing the feelings that you had and um, getting across the disappointment, the internal struggle around some of these decisions. And I was going to ask you, what was what was the motivating factor behind putting so much of yourself and so much personal emotion out there with this book? Well, <clears throat> I felt like the book needed to be real. Um most of the, a lot of the books that you're talking about and, you know, I mean, like David Miller's book, for instance, um, I, I just feel like there's been this tone of, I don't know, you know, like this is what happened and it wasn't my fault and, you know, Jesus made me do it and or whatever. Sorry, excuse me. The devil made me do it. Um, and there hasn't been like a hard look of like, OK, wait, hold on a second. Like, you know why did you choose to do this? Like what, how, who are you as a person and, and how did it get to the point that you were, you know, in the, the room with the, the evil doctor with a syringe pointed at your eyeball or whatever? Like how did, how did it, how'd you get there? And, and then when it was done, what were, what were the repercussions of that? I feel like so far what we've seen in cycling books is a lot of denial a lot of not really taking responsibility, um, a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of sort of glossing over things, polishing things. I mean, I remember I sent an early chapter to Paul Kimmage, and in, this was the best piece of advice anyone gave me in the whole book was, he said, it's too polished, stop polishing it, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually said, stop polishing a turd. Um, but. And that was great advice. And, and, and so I, I just, because I think it's really important that cycling fans understand what high-level professional cyclists are sort of like inside, in their core. And they're, they're not always, you know, these, they come across as these great 
you know, huge personalities on television that are all conquering over mountains and, you know, they, they come across as larger than life and, and, um, you know, and sometimes come across as, as a little sort of harsh and distant and whatever. The reality is these are, these are incredible people. They're flawed people. They're, they're people that, uh, they're, they're doing this in, in a lot of ways to sort of, you know, I don't know, you know, conquer something within themselves or get rid of the inner demons or whatever you want to call it. There's a reason, there's a background reason that they're doing something so extreme. And there's a background reason that they're so good at it and that their brains are able to sort of overcome this extreme lifestyle. And I felt like there needed to be a little bit more exploration on that because to me, that extreme personality and the willingness to dope are totally related and people aren't putting that together like people are saying oh my gosh why would these young men choose to risk their lives you know taking epo and these other and it's like well hold on a second like you know risking your life is going around a corner at 85k an hour in the french alps like and you know flying off the edge i mean we as professional riders are risking everything constantly i mean the crashes you see on tv that's not even half the story of what that's really like to be in the middle of one of those you know the the amount of work, the amount of lifestyle disruption, the amount of sacrifice, all that is is so much higher than you might believe. So saying that it's an extreme choice to dope seems to me like totally in line with the extremities of everything else. The These are not risk-averse people. So I felt like the book needed to look at, take a real hard look at that to give a little bit of a greater understanding of what the real challenge is with anti-doping and not just the the facade of a challenge. And you do that quite well. I think what your book does, especially in some of these early chapters around the uh, early years of your racing career in Europe, where you're racing for this Spanish team, I believe it's the Santa Catarina team. Santa Clara. Santa Clara, which is run by Opus Dei, which is yeah. just completely hilarious. But you, you come across as very insecure in these days because you're this young American who's been told he has a lot of talent. You've done very well in the United States racing and here you are in the European theater and you're just getting thrashed and your teammates are getting thrashed. And it comes across as this group of guys who are downtrodden and unconfident and insecure about their place in the sport. And meanwhile, you contrast that with the riders who you know are doping. And there's this confidence about them. And not only are they able to participate in the races and do well, but outside of the the races, they seem they're confident people. And I thought that captured a really interesting element of doping that I had never seen captured anywhere else, which was the social pressure around doping. You know, we've had other books talk about the financial pressures around doping. Hey, it's what keeps you going in the sport, leads you to a better paycheck. There's the performance element of it too. You're going to win races. You're going to feel great. But I hadn't seen uh, someone capture the social element, which is that at that point in time, if you're a guy who's trying to go the right way, you're almost laughed at. You write about trying to adopt modern training techniques at the time using a power meter and showing up to some of these races and the the other riders are just laughing at you ha 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 guy here you are trying to go about it the the clean way you know was that something what do you remember about that period of life the social pressures to dope no you're 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 hitting it on the head i mean the financial pressures are easy enough to figure out um 
you know, and, and obviously, like, sort of the addiction to winning is easy enough to figure out. Any, anyone can do that, right? But, but um, in that era, the social pressures were real. And it's, it's kind of a, f- a weird thing because it was like, well, wait a minute. Why would all these other guys who are doping pressure you into doping because then you're going to beat them or you know at least be competitive with them like that's stupid of them but the thing was is i think that essentially that there was a culture-wide peloton-wide guilt and it was like if you if you could kind of like chide this poor american kid that's suffering next to you into into come on buddy you got to get your shit together be professional about this these are you know the the little sayings that are used, you know, be professional about this, do your work, blah, 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 into, if you can kind of... This is for your safety. Is it right? Totally, this is right. for your yeah. health. Yeah. No, that, and, that, and those are the arguments that are used. Those are exactly the arguments that are used. But if you can convince this person next to you or whatever, then you feel less guilty about your own doping. And you know who the most, the most classical perpetrator of that actually was Lance. Like I think Lance had some guilt way down in there about doping. And he felt like, you know, he gets his boys together and we're all doing the same thing. And we're all going into the war together. And we're, you know, we're the club. And all of a sudden he feels less guilty. You know, he feels less guilty because it's like, well, everyone else around me is doing it. And it it dissipates the guilt, which is, again, it's just weird because it's like you're, you're, now you just put yourself on a, as opposed to having a leg up on everyone else. Now you're just on the, sort of the, you're all taking the same drug. So then what the heck what was the purpose of that? But that was, and I, I almost want to say the largest element of convincing young riders to dope back then is that culturally it was so accepted and culturally it was under under the undertow encouraged in a way that in the way that like drinking a beer at a high school party is encouraged it's like nobody's going to say if you don't drink a beer you're an idiot or whatever else but it's just that undertow of cultural pressure of social pressure is there and i suppose you know to be to be realistic that's the reason that right now, that I haven't put my finger on this in any interview or anything up until this point, that that's the reason when people, they look at me and they say, well, why are you so confident everything's so good right now? You know, you're like, you know, the biological passport has flaws and this guy just has a positive and I don't know, why, why you, but you just seem to be very confident about what's going on right now. What's that from? And it's from the observations of the social environment. When I was a writer, we would sit around the dinner table and talk about doping for two hours. We would talk about this guy's taking this and this guy's taking that. And hey, what do you think about this? Hey, I looked up on the internet this new drug that's coming out and it looks pretty cool. I don't know. I might grow a horn out of my head, but like, you know, we would, that's what we talk about. And sorry for the helicopter. Um, now I watch the guys talk about just very normal topics for 20 years something year old you know men they're 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 laughing they're happier they're not investigating you know synthetic hemoglobin on the internet you know they're they're just talking about you know their wives and their newborn kid and you know i don't know the markets and the iran situation and etc 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 it's it's so starkly different to what i encountered when i was racing that it, it, it blows me away and and to me I guess that's probably why I am confident is because I see that the social pressure is the other way around right now. 
How do you go about erasing that social pressure? So let's fast forward a decade or so to when you're starting the Slipstream program. You're wanting to have this team that is going to overcome the doping pressures of the time. I have to imagine that a lot of the philosophy you were trying to produce was to overcome these social pressures. How do you... How do you overcome that with a group of young riders when, like, at the time, the cool thing to do is to be investigating hemoglobin, is to be um, trying to get in with these circles of people who have the pathway to, to riches and fame? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that period of time was kind of interesting. You know, 2008 was real sort of transitionary in a way. I mean, you had these massive scandals like Puerto and Festina and all this stuff had happened in, like, some of the sport was trying to turn a corner and some of the sport was not trying to corner a corner and some of the sport was saying, saying, oh, we're going to turn a corner and then not really doing it. I mean, you know, so it was, it was all over the place in 2008 and you had riders from different cultures and different generations and different, you know, different countries and they all had, you know, a different take on this. Um, it wasn't, you know, the social, in 2008, it was sort of interesting. It wasn't 1996 where the social pressure was clearly, yes, you should dope because that's what we're doing and you need to do that too. And come on, little buddy, come on over here. Um, it wasn't that. And it also wasn't uh, this clear anti-doping like, oh my God, if I see you injecting something in a room, I'm going to report you to WADA. You know, like there's they were sort of the two ends of the extreme in 2008. We were somewhere in the middle trying to like figure out which way it was going to go. Um, we tried to create an environment where it seemed financially feasible to not do. It seemed a good, you know, good fiscal decision, good business decision. We'll say, and we tried to make it cool. And when I say cool, meaning, you know, we were loud back in 2008. And a lot of people didn't like that, like that we were just in like magazines constantly, you know, just New York Times and outside and just pounding that drum. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you could look back and say, oh, my God, that was pretty hypocritical, seeing as how you doped yourself and so on and so forth. But the but there was a strategy behind that to make it seem like, hey, we're going to be the most popular team in the world. And we're going to do it in this weird way where we don't actually even win that many races. And eventually that's going to get everyone else to kind of buy into like, this is the right way forward. And that, the, the well, this is what the cool kids are doing. So let's do that. Um, that was the strategy. And I feel like, broadly speaking, it worked. You know, going back in time, after you uh, are persuaded to dope and you start with uh, human growth hormone and with steroids and then eventually move up to EPO, your performance increases and you start doing well in these big international races. You have some wins. You make it onto the uh, U.S. Postal team and that's when your uh, real one-to-one -one relationship with Lance Armstrong begins. Um, you know, this is your book. It's not about your relationship with Lance Armstrong. But looking back... At the period in which you and Lance were both riders together, what are some words you would use to describe that relationship? Well, I mean, listen, I was certainly never one of the guys who was really close to Lance. Um, I think Lance, uh, I, yeah, I was always just a little bit of an outsider to him. I don't think he ever quite knew what to make of me. I don't think he trusted me ever, <clears throat> uh, rightfully so. He... he tended to kind of like you know make fun of me a little bit and thought I was a little bit quirky and weird and and you know there's certainly you know a guy like Kevin Livingston for instance could write a much more in-depth book about you know who Lance Armstrong really is than 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 I could I I just sort of observed him even though I was his teammate 
Um, it was it was more like me sort of, sta- you know, three feet back, kind of like watching him. And with a lot of curiosity, by the way, because he's, you know, he's sort of a, a fascinating person and in not always a positive way. In fact, rarely a positive way, but, but he is truly sort of a, 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 you know, a fascinating person that's just that's able to like have a conscience in one moment and then just kind of switch it off and like put it in the kitchen cabinet and lock it up and say like, okay, for the next five days, I'm not going to have a conscience. And it's, it's amazing. Like you, you didn't see a lot of those internal struggles with him, which I, it always blew me away. Like he was never, he was never like vexed with philosophical questions. He was never thinking like, is this right? Or is this wrong? It was always very much just like, you know, Machiavellian, like point A to point B, like what do I, means ends, means ends. Like what do I need to do to get here? But it was just practical decision-making and, and no real like inner, inner battle. It's almost like he didn't have an inner dialogue, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and it comes across as, you know, he's an alpha. He's a guy who's going to be making a decision based off of maybe just because he wants to make the decision and go that right. route, whereas you're going to think about it and have an analytical tone. And you write about this in the book about how those two attitudes just don't really mesh. And you right. make the decision to leave the Postal Service team after 1999 because, you know, it's not going well with Lance, not really going well with Bruniel. You're yeah. seeing opportunities elsewhere. I'm also curious, though, at that period of time – what was your con- where was your conscious conscience at with doping with cycling with having success at you know at that point in your career you're being able to race the Tour de France winning big stages of the race what was your in- inner dialogue like at that point I mean it was all over the place I mean it was it was it was totally all over the place I mean this is kind of going back a little bit but I just thought of a really funny instance of I, mean, I can remember the 98 Vuelta I was in this elevator with Lance and Christian Vandeveld had told Lance, like, listen, you know, my, I think it was his brother or his cousin, somebody very important anyway, was getting married. And it was, you know, like Christian was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to go to world championships because, you know, my cousin's getting married. And world championships wasn't a U.S. Postal Service race. Obviously, it's a U.S. national team race. I'm not going to be able to go, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, sorry. And and Lance was, you know, pretty pissed because he wanted to win worlds that year in, in 98. And we're going down the elevator. And I said to Lance, and I, you know, because he's an only child, and I was kind of trying to relate to him. And I'm like, yeah, you know, listen, I know as an only child, sometimes like it's hard to see things outside of your own perspective. You're so used to just. And I said, I struggle a lot with that too, you know, just seeing things from someone else's perspective and understanding what other people feel for their siblings and family because I was always a little bit isolated. And, you know, so I know this hearing this from Christian must be a little bit tricky for you or whatever. And, uh, and he just looks at me like with this puzzled look like, no, it's not tricky at all. He's like, Christian needs to do world championships and I don't give a crap about his brother. And it was just, it was like the funniest thing. We just both get to the ground floor and like walk out of the elevator and I'm like, okay, right. So no, uh, philosophical conversations about being only child or children, yeah. you know, like that done. Um, but yeah, so the, the struggle for me, I mean, listen, I bounced around. I mean, it was like. I'd train really well, or, you know, I'd take Epo, train really well, whatever, in whatever order you want, you know, really focus. And then I'd like win a big race. And then I'd feel like horribly guilty about it. And, you know, the classic one is in, in the book, the, talking about the 2001 Dauphiné, where I build up and build up and build up for the Dauphiné. And, and like, and I, and, you know, because 
of all the people that were on U.S. Postal Service that were living in Girona at that time, I learned about this new way to evade the EPO test through them. And so I'm like, oh, my God, all right, I'm back in the game. I'm back in the game. I go to the Dauphiné. You know, I'm in the league group in the first couple of mountain stages. I win the time trial. I'm like, I'm on my way to winning the Dauphiné. Like, no problem. And, you know, the night after I won the time trial, my brain imploded on me, partially because I was afraid I was going to test positive because I wasn't exactly so sure about these ways that they said you got around the test. And I, and I melted down. I didn't sleep at all. You know, I was just like, trembling nervous the entire night i woke up the next morning barely ate breakfast you know went and got my ass kicked in the next stage and it was a classic example of like well if you if your conscience couldn't handle that decision then why did you make that decision and then freak out about it afterwards and like you know curl up in a fetal ball and cry about it and i don't know but that was that was sort of my life for like three or four years there where it was it was very much like okay like, this is the way the game is played. I have to do this. And then completely melting down because I didn't feel right about it or I was scared of getting caught or, you know, the victory on top of on two where I won and I was kind of like, it was almost like, whoa, that's, it's kind of funny. You know, I just, I just beat everyone. I beat Vinokrov and Baloki and Lance and all these guys, you know, Tyler, and I just killed them all. And like, it, it just seemed like the day that you're like, wait a minute. Are those lines that are going up to the puppet's arms? They are. Oh, look at the. Oh, that puppet isn't. It's not moving by itself at all. You know, it. It just seemed like that moment. I just. I. I realized, like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I could have done this four years ago when I was on Santa Clara, but it just. It. It. You know, it just. It didn't feel real and it didn't feel right. But then. Did I enjoy having the yellow jersey in the Dauphiné? Hell yeah, I did. Did I enjoy getting paid a lot of money, you know, for the next contract that I got? Yeah, I enjoyed that too, you know? So, you know, and then felt terribly guilty about all that, you know? So I don't know. It was, that's why I had to step away from cycling at a relatively young age, just 30 years old, is I could never reconcile that. I like, I knew what I had to do in order to perform well. I knew how to dope. I knew, you know, and... And I wanted to do that because I wanted to perform well for my sponsors and I wanted to perform well for my team and I wanted to perform well for my fans. Like I wanted to like make these people happy and yet, and support my family and pay my mortgage and all of that. And yet like I couldn't live with it. So what I knew is that I, I couldn't just say okay it's fine i'll just be a mediocre rider i'll just finish 73rd place and be okay with that 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 i couldn't handle either so it came down to it, it's it's just like an it's an addiction I mean, it's a classic like an alcoholic like you an alcoholic can't just have two drinks you know it's either you know what do they say with alcoholics like uh you know as we're drinking wine um one is too many and like a million is never enough yeah. right and that's what I felt like as a cyclist. And so I I just had to stop because it was the only way I was going to get out of this like cycle of of doping and then self-loathing and then not doping and then saying I'm going to clean up my act and then doing it again and then self-loathing. And I mean, I just had to stop. So the book, uh, the second half of the book 
takes us through your life after your cycling career, uh, famous, you know, famously found, founding the Slipstream team, um, trying to build this culture around young riders, uh, building the team into a team that's capable of racing the Tour de France, and then in 2009, building a team that's capable of contending for the win. You famously hired Bradley Wiggins onto your team. You saw potential in uh, Wiggins as a Grand Tour champion and helped lead him along, helped coach him and train him. You know, he lost weight. He he turned into a, a rider that was capable of contending for the Tour de France uh, victory. And then you detail this really interesting uh, occurrence, which is it's the early days of Team Sky. David Brailsford is getting his team together, which is going to be this British team. They want to take on the Tour de France, and they have their eyes on Bradley Wiggins. And you describe in great detail some of the scenes around the 2009 Tour de France, where Wiggins is on your team, and he's your star, and he has told you that he is committed to the team. And yet there are these guys, these British guys from Team Sky who are just kind of hanging around and hanging out with Bradley. And and you know that in the back of your mind, they're probably going to make a play for Bradley. And and eventually they do. And I guess the question for you is looking at how the situation played out with Wiggins, where he had committed to your team, signed a contract, broke that contract and went to Team Sky. How much does that inform your current opinion and just emotional connection to Brailsford, Team Sky, Team Ineos? Well, I mean, clearly I'm not a fan. I mean, and, and that and that bitterness lasts to this day. Um, you know, it, it's not something I've gotten over. Um, you know, I felt like, um, you know, Brad had a contract with us and he was our highest performing writer. He's somebody that now I didn't, I did not coach him at all, but I did see the ability of him to make that sort of transfer from an Olympic gold medalist on the track to, you know, this incredible rider on the road. I, you know, and that was always based on this little snippet I saw of him at the 2005 tour de l'avenir when he won the mountain stage there. Um, and to basically just have a, a group of guys who, frankly, weren't interested in Brad, the Sky guys, were not interested in him all that much before the Tour de France. They were like, yeah, 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 I mean, maybe he'll come and race for us eventually, but whatever, not a priority right now. We're building, you know, we're building Team Sky and, you know, we don't need Brad to, you know, we're going to put whatever resources we need into making sure that you are stripped of Brad. So it's like, going from not having faith in him whatsoever to, you know, basically telling him, whispering to him, you know, you need to change teams and we're the path forward. We're the path of enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't like that at all. I mean, you know, there, I, I, I mean, obviously I, I just think agreements and should be respected. And, um, you know, in this case they weren't. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it taints my view on, on Brailsford and Ineos and Sky, and, and I'll be the first person to say that, that my view of that program is, is, is biased, and biased in a negative way, um, because of the treatment I've received and the way I've watched them operate in that situation specifically, very much behind the scenes, and then, you know, uh, 
and then in a myriad of other situations since then. You know, Jonathan, there's tons of different talking points we could get into around this book. Everything from the uh, reasoned decision case and how you were um, sat down, you know, in front of uh, government investigators for the Lance Armstrong case. Uh, it took 2017 when the team almost disappeared. We're going to leave a lot of those mysteries untouched in this interview because I do want our listeners to go read the book. But the last question I have for you is, you know, this is a very revealing look and you do discuss your own uh, successes and failures with your own personal relationships in life, uh, divorces, relationships that went awry. And in the conclusion of this book, you make a fairly revealing personal, uh, a revealing personal statement, which is that you are diagnosed with with Asperger's. Um, How how has that changed your life uh, since having that diagnosis? And did you have a did you have an idea that there might be something like that? Well, listen, with I, you? I, I think anyone, including yourself, who's probably known me for the last you know fifteen years or whatever, would say, you know, yeah, JV, I like him. He's an interesting guy, but a little odd around the edges. Um, and I always knew I was very polarizing. You know, that people would sort of like love me or hate me or that my opinions were very polarizing. And I never understood that. You know, I, uh, to me, I was just like, well, you asked me this question and now I'm expressing my opinion and or, you know, the, what I feel to be the truthful answer to this. And like, you know, here you go. Just very sort of abruptly, directly. Um, and, you know, and, and in a lot of cases without a lot of sensitivity. And I've done that, you know, professionally and personally. And um, and I think I got to the point where professionally I was making it work in that people sort of almost appreciated, like, the extreme directness and the extreme, like, if you want me to get this done, I will get it done. And, you know, take no prisoners. This is how we're doing it. Like, here's the plan, X, Y, Z. Like, I, I'm really sorry if I had to step on this person's or whatever else. Like, there was a, a lack of social sensitivity in a, lot, in a lot of the things I did. And, like I said, where that worked professionally in the extreme work ethic and the extreme focus that I've had where, you, you know, just – making sure something got done. I don't care. I, like, I don't have to sleep for a few days. That's fine. We'll just work 24 hours a day. Like, why doesn't everyone else want to do that too? Come on, guys. Get your act together. Like, what do you... Go home and see your family? What? You know, this is ridiculous. They'll, like, are they fed? Then they're fine. Um, on a personal level, that works less well. <laughs> a lot less well. Um, and I just didn't have any idea as to, I just felt like, okay, I'm just a bit of an oddball. Um, and so there are various catalyzing factors as to, to why I began to suspect that maybe, maybe, you know, I did have some form of Asperger's. Um, and you know, when I finally, uh, you know, went in to an Asperger's therapist, uh, you know, the, the answer was yes. (laughs) And, what it's done for me since then, I will say, is it's just it's given me a different lens and perspective on on how I'm affecting other people. Um, and you know, people are genuinely really like warm and almost like in a way like drawn to me in a good way. And and I haven't historically like 
given much back and that it's like the, it's like they will see me as sort of this and this applies to my marriages and this applies to a lot of friends that i've had over the years a lot of you know ex slipstreamers whatever else is that they're they're very magnetically drawn to to you know whatever charisma or something that i've got going on but then i at certain moments just leave them out in the cold and they're really hurt by that really hurt um and I would certainly say that both of my wives, their ex-wives, were very hurt by that exact thing where I just, you know, I was focusing on what I was doing and I wasn't going to focus on them and I wasn't going to give them any time because there wasn't any logical reason to do that. It's like being Dr. Spock, you know, that that's sort of the, the mindset of someone, you know, with the sort of the, the, the spectrum of Asperger's that I have is that you, you know, you're, you're just going about things the most efficient way and you're not you're not caring about other people and and with a diagnosis i just realized how many people that i have hurt over the years by actions and by statements and um nothing intentional you know my intention was never to do any of that but it was lack of self-awareness and i guess that's probably the biggest biggest thing i could say is that you know, for years and years, I've had a very extreme lack of self-awareness and the, the Asperger's, uh, diagnosis, you know, has made me aware of that. And, and it's a lot of work for me to be self-aware. It doesn't come naturally like it does to a lot of other people where they're, they're looking at the room around them and considering other people's feelings. And that is not a natural thing to me. You know, it's, I think it's a double whammy, like only child and Asperger's. Like, it's just, you know, good God, like, how do I ever get out of my own head? But I really do put a lot of effort into that these days. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether there's progress or not, but um, but I hope there is. Well, Jonathan, you got lots of thoughts out of your head into this book. Um, again, it's called One Way Ticket by Jonathan Vodders. Nine Lives on Two Wheels. It is going to be available soon. By the time listeners listen to this, it may be available. Is there a, a U.S. – what's the U.S. date? Uh, so – the UK published date is this Thursday, June twenty seventh. Mm. I don't know when this this podcast is going out. the The US published date isn't until mid August, okay. um, so it's a little bit longer. Um, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you know, I, I I I would I'm not pushing this book at all. Like this this book was not about selling books. This book I, like it, it, if. I always said, like, if, if only 15 people read it, if those 15 people are, are highly intelligent people that love it, then I'm going to be really happy. Like, it's it's not an entertaining book. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a reflective book. It's a very real book. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I hope that it, that, it, that it brings people back to sort of why they loved cycling. I mean, we didn't really talk about the early days, which... That's to me. Those are some of the most beautiful chapters when we talk about just like a you know 15 year old kid that is just bonkers in love with cycling. But I hope it, I hope it gives people a perspective into someone that just fell crazily in love with bike racing, and it's been his whole life. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. 